Welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and today I'm going to talk about acute myeloid leukemia again. And in particular, I'm going to talk about how we treat acute myeloid leukemia. So you really need to have listened to the earlier episode, Acute Myeloid Leukemia 1, What is this disease? That's the one where I explain what AML is. But in this episode, I'm just going to talk about the treatment of AML. And by the end of that first episode on AML, we were at the point where the patient had turned up with abnormal blood counts, maybe painful bones, big liver, big spleen, big lymph nodes, some combination of all of this. And we will have done a bone marrow test and demonstrated acute myeloid leukemia in the bone marrow. The patient will have got a central line put in. They will have had a spinal tap, a lumbar puncture to check the spinal fluid for leukemia cells. And they will have had a test of their heart, usually an echocardiogram, an ultrasound of the heart. And by then we're sort of ready to start talking about giving some treatment to actually kill the leukemia. But there's a bit more happening in those days. Remember, the patient needs to be stabilised. Oftentimes they'll need to have a blood transfusion. They may need to have a platelet transfusion. They may have infections because their normal white blood cells aren't present in the right numbers and so they can't fight infections properly. So they may be on antibiotics. So patients with AML at initial diagnosis can look perfectly well. Others can look desperately sick. It's a very variable thing. But whatever they look like, they've got a very serious disease. Acute myeloid leukemia is a very serious disease and it needs very strong treatment. So once the patient is stable and able to proceed, the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia starts off with chemotherapy drugs, cancer drugs. So listen to my other episodes on what chemotherapy is. Listen to the one on Dorna Rubison and Doxorubicin, and hopefully there'll be others forthcoming on the other drugs we use in AML. Yes, the treatment for AML starts with chemotherapy drugs, and these drugs are normally given in hospital. And the backbone of treatment, the main drugs that are usually there in the combination, are two drugs. One of them is called cytosine arabinicide, or ARA-C, and the other is called dornarubicin. And a lot of the time there's a third drug. It might be etoposide, or it might be an oral drug, thioguanine, or it might be something else. So there's different protocols in different countries, uh, but the main sort of key components of them are usually that cytosine arabinicide drug and a drug like dornarubicin or idarubicin, one of those red chemotherapy drugs. Whichever combination it is, the drugs are normally given for several days, might be that they're given for 10 days, might be less, and the patient generally stays in hospital for all of this time. In addition, there would normally be an intrathecal injection. So remember we did a lumbar puncture to look for leukemia cells in the spinal fluid, well, normally we would also do a lumbar puncture to inject a chemotherapy drug into the spinal fluid. So even children that don't have leukemia cells that we can see in the spinal fluid, normally we have to do an injection into the spinal fluid to protect the brain and spinal fluid from the leukemia. Now that might happen at the start of treatment or it might happen a few weeks into treatment. 
but generally it happens at some point. And patients that have leukemia cells in the spinal fluid, they normally get a series of those injections. They get uh, more frequent lumbar puncture and intrathecal injections. So that's what we start with. This first cycle of chemotherapy, the backbone of treatment is normally cytosine and dornorubicin or some other combination of drugs. And then oftentimes we just keep the patient in hospital for the weeks afterwards because these drugs are really strong chemotherapy drugs. The problem is that the normal bone marrow and the leukemia in the bone marrow are very similar in their biology. They are the same family of cells after all. And the drugs that we're using to really kill the leukemia unfortunately also hit the normal bone marrow very severely. What does that mean? Well, it means that a week or two after we give these chemotherapy drugs, the bone marrow is just totally knocked out for a period of time. Now, it might just be several days, but it may be weeks that the bone marrow isn't working properly. So that means even if the leukemia was gone by then, the bone marrow wouldn't be working properly. So the bone marrow wouldn't be making red blood cells properly and the patient ends up needing a blood transfusion. The bone marrow won't be making platelets properly. Remember, platelets are the little cells that make your blood clot. Well, they won't be being made properly. And so the patient will end up needing platelet transfusions to prevent bleeding from occurring. The normal white blood cells will drop close to zero most of the time. And so infections are common. And often patients with AML during this phase of treatment end up on antibiotics And then after a few days on one set of antibiotics, they often end up on other antibiotics as fevers continue and continue. And then often we have to go looking for infections, very closely examining the patient, often doing CT scans or ultrasounds or other tests, trying to find out where might an infection be lurking in this patient whose immune system is very impaired from the chemotherapy. So it's a really big deal. These first weeks after chemotherapy normally involves staying in hospital, on transfusions, on antibiotics. Often the patient develops mouth ulcers from the dornorubicin, may need to be on pain medicines, may need artificial nutrition. It's a really busy and intensive time and it's a bit dangerous. And so, like I said, oftentimes we don't even try to send the patient home after the chemotherapy. We know they're going to end up back in hospital with fevers and on antibiotics and everything else. And so often we just keep the patient in hospital during this first cycle of treatment. But after a few weeks, we hope to see that the blood counts start to recover. And then we do a bone marrow test to see what's happened to the leukemia. Remember at the very start that the bone marrow was full of leukemia cells. Oftentimes, most of the cells we see on the slides that we make of the bone marrow have the appearance of leukemia cells. Well, what we want to see after this first cycle of chemotherapy, this first cycle of induction chemotherapy, we want to see that the patient has gone into remission. Remission meaning that the leukemic cells are under about 5%, as far as we can tell with the microscope. Now, our chances to go into remission with this first cycle of therapy are quite good. The majority of patients do go into remission with the first cycle. 
but they're not as good as they are in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. If you've listened to my ALL podcast, you will have heard that about 98 or 99% of patients with ALL go into remission in one month. Well, the figure wouldn't be that high in AML. It might be that 75 or 80% of patients go into remission after this first cycle of induction therapy. But there's a decent proportion of patients who need a second cycle of treatment to get into remission, and there are indeed patients who don't go into remission. That means that at the end of their first cycle and then their second cycle of treatment, for instance, that we do the bone marrow test and we can still see the leukemia. Now, that's a bad situation. Failure to go into remission is a serious development indeed. Anyway, after that first cycle of induction therapy and that bad few weeks in hospital, we do that bone marrow test, and if the patient's gone into remission, or even if they haven't, normally we would go on with a second cycle of chemotherapy, probably another lumbar puncture, probably similar chemotherapy drugs to the first cycle, perhaps somewhat shorter course. It varies from protocol to protocol. But we would proceed with a second cycle usually, and then again we'd see the blood counts drop and the blood and platelet transfusions and the antibiotics and the fevers and the everything else, and then hopefully see the counts recover, do the bone marrow test, and hopefully see that the patient is in remission. So that's the first two cycles of treatment in AML, and often they would be being called induction 1 and induction 2, or something like that. So now we have to work out what to do next, because two cycles of treatment is not enough treatment for acute myeloid leukemia. And so now I have to talk about the things that we look at to determine a high-risk patient and a low-risk patient. So when I say a high-risk patient, I mean a patient who is at high risk of not being cured. So that's the bad combination of features in the disease that make, that make a patient have high-risk AML. And then there are patients with low-risk AML. Well, they've still got a very terrible disease. It's still AML. It's a serious disease. But they have some features about their disease that make them more likely to be cured of their disease than the high-risk patients. So we end up with high-risk patients and low-risk patients, or there may be a group called intermediate-risk patients. Now, one of the key ways that we define the risk group for a patient with AML is by looking at the chromosomes of the leukemia cells. So you remember, we normally have 46 chromosomes in our cells, and we're 46XY if we're a male and 46XX if we're female. Leukemia cells often have abnormalities in the chromosomes. So child is born with totally normal chromosomes, for instance, but when the cell becomes a leukemic cell, it gets messed up. Some of its chromosomes become abnormal, and these are things that we can test for in the cytogenetics lab. We can look for abnormalities in the chromosomes, and certain abnormalities in AML make a disease a better case of AML, and some make it a more high-risk case of AML. For instance, if we see a translocation between chromosome 8 and 21, uh, so if chromosomes 8 and 21 have swapped over a bit of each other, that's a favourable finding. 
There's another one called inversion of chromosome 16. These are all technical descriptions that cytogenetics people understand. That's another favourable finding. There's one called a 1517 translocation. Well, that's the one we see in acute promyelocytic leukaemia. Very different form of leukaemia, and basically this podcast episode doesn't apply to those patients. It tends to end up a favourable thing to find, but they get treated totally differently. On the other hand, there are some unfavourable things you can find on the chromosomes. If you find that chromosome 5 or chromosome 7 has lost a chunk of the chromosome, well, that can be a high-risk form of AML. So these chromosome findings in the leukemic cells are very important to defining if a patient has high-risk AML or low-risk AML, and that becomes important to deciding what we do next in the way of treatment. So we need to know if the patient has favourable cytogenetics or unfavourable cytogenetics, or sometimes they just have normal cytogenetics, which is sort of a bit in between as far as significance. So that's how it was for many years. We looked at these cytogenetics. More recently, there's a bunch of other tests we can do on the DNA of the leukaemia cells, again looking for things that are associated with a better outlook or a worse outlook. So an unfavourable thing that we've discovered in recent years is something called FLT3ITD. So that's FLT3 hyphen ITD. That's FLT3 internal tandem duplication. And that's something that's tested for with a groovy molecular DNA test. On the other hand, there's some DNA findings that can make a patient have low-risk AML. There's a gene called NPM. There's another one called CEBP-alpha. And if you have mutations in these genes, well, that's associated with a lower risk form of AML. Now, this stuff is all incredibly complicated. You don't just look at one result in isolation. You have to look at all of the results together. It really is very complicated. And then, in addition to all of these tests, we have to look at, well, what happened after cycle one and cycle two of treatment? Did the patient go into remission or not? Or if they did go into remission, these days there are some groups that have a minimal residual disease test. So the patient can look like they're in remission with the microscope, but this minimal residual disease test can measure more accurately tiny, tiny levels of residual leukemia. And all of these things, the cytogenetics, the molecular tests and the response to treatment all get put together to work out if a patient has standard risk or low risk AML or if they have the high risk form of AML. And then that's important as we work out what to do next. And the key thing to consider is which patients should have a bone marrow transplant. And I'm talking here about a bone marrow transplant from one person given to the patient. So not the autologous one really, but a bone marrow transplant from another person, an allogeneic bone marrow transplant. We have done autologous transplants for AML over the years. Uh, We're not doing them as much as we once did. They probably still have a place in the treatment of AML. But now I'm talking here about the allogeneic transplant, bone marrow from a normal donor being given to the patient. 
And I've done an episode explaining what a bone marrow transplant is, but it's a big deal. There's a lot to it. It's complex. It brings certain risks, and these can be serious. And so it's important to know whether patients really are likely to benefit from having a bone marrow transplant or not. So first, if we look at the patients with what we're calling the lower risk form of AML. So we're talking about the patients that have favourable chromosome tests and favourable DNA tests, and they don't have any of the unfavourable things. And suppose these patients have the chemotherapy and go into remission promptly. Well, these are patients that may well not need a bone marrow transplant. And so further treatment for these patients would normally be just with some more cycles of chemotherapy. It might be another two cycles or three or four, something like that, usually with some more lumbar punctures along the way, probably with similar drugs that they've already had, plus some other drugs. They may have mitoxantrone added to the combination. They may have more RSC, Dornarubicin. They may have certain other drugs. But they are a group where it may be that we can just give chemotherapy, no bone marrow transplant, and be optimistic that they can be cured of their disease. On the other hand, we have the patients that have high-risk features to their AML. These may be patients who have unfavorable chromosome changes in the leukemia cells, or that FLT3 ITD abnormality, or they may be patients who don't go into remission promptly. Uh, They have persisting leukemia after our chemotherapy. These are all patients that you would look at and consider whether you should be performing an allogeneic bone marrow transplant. And so early on in the piece, these may be patients where we are performing tissue typing and looking around to see if there's a bone marrow donor available within the family or elsewhere. Again, listen to my episode on bone marrow transplant and on tissue typing, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about. Usually, if patients are going to have an allogeneic bone marrow transplant, well, they would normally have another cycle or two of chemotherapy. Uh, Again, something like cycles one and two, but probably with a few differences. And that would be designed to really get the leukemic level as low as possible before going to the bone marrow transplant. So that's the sort of broad description of the therapy. In lower-risk patients, there would be the first and second induction cycles of treatment and then usually another two or three or four cycles of treatment to follow. In the higher-risk patients, we would generally start with something pretty similar for cycles one and two, uh, but then we'd be considering where were we going eventually regarding a bone marrow transplant And if we were going to go to a transplant, we're likely to give another one or two or three cycles of chemotherapy first and then go to the bone marrow transplant phase of treatment. Once we complete the cycles of chemotherapy with or without the bone marrow transplant, well, that would normally be the end of the treatment for AML, provided the patient was in remission. So we don't have the long maintenance phase that we have in ALL, for instance. Again, I have to stress how strong this treatment is, that this is essentially one of the most intensive chemotherapy combinations of any that we use, that we can predict that patients being treated for AML will spend a lot of time in hospital. 
There'll be weeks at a time in hospital, very often, on antibiotics, on blood and platelets, often needing nutritional support, and it can be a pretty bad time and it's a bit of a dangerous time. Things can go wrong. These treatments have been developed, though, in big, huge clinical trials and and we have established that they are effective therapies. Often, an oncology unit might have a clinical trial open for the treatment of patients with AML. We're always looking to improve on the treatments that we have, and it may be that you're offered participation in a trial in AML, and it might be a trial that adds in a new drug or some new test or some new approach to bone marrow transplantation. I've got some podcast episodes on clinical trials and what they're all about. But certainly there's room for us to improve our treatments in AML. Now, I don't want to go into great detail about the prognosis in AML. You know, the prognosis is, well, what are the chances to cure patients with AML? And the reason I don't want to go into great detail is because it is a complex combination of all of those things I said and I really think you should talk to your own doctors and get them to put together what they know about all of these tests and all the results they have at hand and to give you information. I think I can say that AML's prognosis overall is not as good as ALL, for instance. But a majority of patients with AML these days are cured. But the thing is there are patients who have a better prognosis and there are ones with a worse prognosis. I don't want to announce some sort of magic figure that you'll lock in your mind. It would be better to get a very personalized and individualized analysis of the situation from your own doctors. But to summarize again, acute myeloid leukemia needs very intensive strong chemotherapy to try to get the patient into remission. It normally involves weeks in hospital, managing the side effects from the treatment, but a majority of patients will go into remission. Then the decision has to be made about whether a patient should head towards a bone marrow transplant, and that's something that's very much considered in patients with higher risk forms of AML, or whether it may be a patient that can have another two or three cycles of chemotherapy, for instance, and not have a bone marrow transplant. Thanks again for listening in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff. I hope you've found this helpful, but let me know if you haven't, or if you have any questions, leave them at the Facebook page. But for now, I'll leave it there. I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.